Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. So what does the American Revolution look like when we consider it from the vantage point of its British participants? How does that change the way we think about the origins of the United States, as well as major figures such as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, or George III? And in the New Republic, how did Jefferson try to keep the revolution alive through his ideas on education? On today's episode, Dr. Andrew O'Shaughnessy helps us to explore those questions. O'Shaughnessy is a historian of the American Revolution. He's also the Saunders Director of the International Center for Jefferson Studies at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. The ICJS, as it's commonly known, is one of the premier institutes for the study of the American Revolution and the early Republic. In 2014, O'Shaughnessy was awarded the George Washington Book Prize for his book, The Men Who Lost America, British Leadership, the American Revolution, and the Fate of Empire. He is currently at work on a book about Thomas Jefferson and his vision for education in the early United States. We recorded our conversation at ICJS, just down the mountain from Monticello. And as you'll hear, O'Shaughnessy oversees an educational enterprise with a number of moving parts. Now, as we head into the holiday homestretch, we just wanted to say thanks again to you, our listeners. We're grateful for your support, and we're very excited for the year ahead. But before we go back to the future, let's spend some time in the past with Andrew O'Shaughnessy, the British and the American Revolution, and George Washington's favorite Secretary of State. Let's start actually with your with your tenure here as the Saunders Director, the Robert H. Smith Center. Uh, oh, inter, sorry, International Center for Jefferson Studies. How how long have you held that? This so I've been position? here uh, sixteen years. Sixteen years, and it became the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson mm-hmm. Studies just a year after my arrival when Robert H. Smith. Uh, ah gave a major endowment to help to uh, support mm-hmm. the operations of the research here at Monticello. And so when you arrived, what, what was it then called, just the Center for Jefferson Studies? Just or? the International Center The International Center. Studies. So it did have that, that international yes, focus? Yes, that's get-go. partly because Stedman Rockefeller was on the board uh-huh. and very keen that it be an international mm-hmm. center and um, Rui Ramazzani, who'd been head of politics at um, mm-hmm. University of Virginia, was similarly keen that uh, it should not just look at domestic audiences, but also at international audiences. International audience. So what, what was your lay of the land when you arrived? I and mean, you came from the University of Wisconsin? That's correct. Um, and... Uh, Obviously, I'm originally from Britain. Uh, <laughs> Not sure I, what gave it away. I <laughs> grew up there, um, but always with an interest in America. At the age of seven, uh, my parents moved over to New York, mm-hmm. um, where my father taught at Columbia University. And they thought they were going to be there for a short time. In fact, sure. it turned out to be 30 years. <laughs> so I pretty well did all my education mm-hmm. in England, including my... Uh, undergraduate degree and doctorate at Oxford. Uh, I did briefly, before going to university, take a few courses at Columbia University, but uh, I was largely trained in Britain, Mm -hmm. uh, in British imperial history, which Ah. was a dying (laughs) subject, although is now actually one that which was great interest. Generally, it was just embarrassment about the Empire and often the United States was never really treated mm-hmm. as part of a British Empire. Of course, curiously, uh, 
Now, and, why, uh, that why is was that? changing. <laughs> yeah, why, why was that? I mean, why, why was the United um, States left out of that equation? Much of uh, the study of the British Empire was the study of what's sometimes known as the Second Empire, ah. so it's the post-American Revolutionary Empire. And you know, there's also a tendency just not to to think of it mm-hmm. because I think um, maybe it's the sense that it's a first world country sure and so somehow we have this caricature of former colonies as ah. part of the what was once known as the third world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, and you don't for example when people do post-colonial studies that yeah. never includes the United States <laughs> but there's no reason why it shouldn't sure. and in fact uh, I've always retained this interest in imperial history because mm-hmm. I think we can learn a lot comparatively by looking at similar mm-hmm. processes and policies in different countries. So in your training uh, in Oxford uh, how, did, how did that interest in imperial history play out in the, in the course of your studies and your, your sort of early projects as a historian? Mm-hmm. Well my very earliest work was on the British Caribbean. Ah, yes. And I even started that before going to university. Uh, it stemmed from doing some local history mm-hmm. in which there was a planter family uh, who'd had uh, <coughs> land and plantations in the Caribbean for about two and a half centuries. Wow. And I wrote up one of the family members and in college as an undergraduate I wrote the story of the rise and decline of their Plantations, and that suggested to me the topic for my thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, since one of the members of the family, someone called Sigillis Bain, had been very pro-American during the American Revolution, oh. and I wondered how common that was, uh, why the islands hadn't rebelled, mm-hmm. and, and I actually started the project on the assumption that they were probably very pro-American oh, and sure. would have joined the revolution but for being islands but in actual fact I came to a very different conclusion when I did the book from mm-hmm. my thesis which is called An Empire Divided the American Revolution and the British Caribbean So and what was the conclusion you came to then as you uh, progressed through that project? So I thought that politics more like that of American loyalists uh, and realised that their ideas were very similar mm-hmm. you know, the same sort of Wig, Lockean uh-huh. ideas uh, that of the Americans. I didn't see those so much of um, the sort of radical Commonwealth ideas, but even so, uh, great similarities. They had assemblies just like the American colonies, and sure. some of their assemblies were more radical. And the Assembly of Jamaica was the first assembly in the Americas to be formally uh, chastised by Parliament. <laughs> uh, and that was as early as 1650, yeah. uh, 1751. Uh, the Assembly of Barbados said that Parliament didn't have the right to govern uh, and intervene in the government of the colonies. And that was as early as the 1640s. That's, so, that's really radical thought. So this is very remarkable. Um, and... Uh, but I realised that context was all important. Mm-hmm. So the economic relationship with Britain and uh, the social composition, mm-hmm. 90% of most of these islands were enslaved people. Sure. And so uh, 
you know, this is always the danger of just emphasizing the role of ideas. Yeah. And I've, I've always been a strong believer in never looking at single factors mm -hmm. uh, and looking at the interplay of different factors to explain how people behave. And if I remember rightly from the book, you know, during the sort of the initial phase of what we call the imperial crisis, mm -hmm. a lot of those assemblies were almost in lockstep with protests against the Stamp Act and and, and uh, broader uh, Parliament's broader attempts to uh, intervene in colonial assembly, or what people thought should be the right of colonial assemblies and, and well, taxation. There were Stamp Act rats and St. Kitts and Nevis. Oddly, Jamaican Barbados actually paid the stamp ah, money okay. and never formally complained. And the only pamphlets to come out of that crisis in the Caribbean, which all of the islands had printing presses, mm -hmm. are ones explaining why they complied oh. <laughs> and essentially giving excuses. Uh -huh. uh, and Jamaica had a major domestic dispute with its governor at the time, so some people have used that to ah. explain you know, the, the assembly had been prorogued. Um, yeah. But uh, on the other hand, you know, they never formally denounced the ah. Townsend duties. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because clearly they didn't believe in internal taxes by parliament. Sure. Um, but they felt that they could still uh, use other means of lobbying uh, and more indirect means rather than uh, actually confronting the question of what power Parliament had. And is that because, uh, as you were alluded to earlier, there was such an economic tie between the islands and mm -hmm. Great Britain, uh, a lot of capital flowing out of London into the islands and in the sugar trade and, and whatnot, sending products back, that there was a real economic incentive on both sides to reach some kind of accommodation? Yes. In fact, I put a lot of stress on economic factors uh, that essentially were dependent on the British market, these islands, um, mm. and that they were not competitive with the French islands. Ah. So it cost anywhere from 15 to 20% more to produce sugar and rum on these islands. Uh, which is quite a differential. And that is why you have this large illicit trade mm -hmm. from North America uh, with sure. the French islands. Uh, and it was made more extreme because France did not allow the importation of rum or molasses. Mm -hmm. So they were dumping their molasses on the market, <laughs> which are a byproduct of making sugar, sure. uh, which meant the Americans were picking this up for virtually nothing. Yeah. They did, of course like the better quality of British Caribbean rum. So Washington, during the revolution, was still drinking British Caribbean <laughs> rum. Uh, as I've discovered, was Thomas Jefferson. Oh, really? Like rum from Antigua, which ironically today is called Cavalier. That's the main brand. Is it really? Uh, <laughs> rum on uh, Antigua. I'll be darn. But uh, I never wanted me to really explain it more in terms of the social factors. Mm -hmm. I did not discount those. I felt they were terribly important. Um, it's very revealing that Jamaica and Antigua were willing to pay for British troops and supplement their salaries because sure. they were so keen to have the army there. Yeah. And although they were vulnerable to foreign attack, they never really thought the army was a very effective weapon yeah. against invasion. In fact, once an invader had stepped foot on one of these islands, most of them believed you just... 
capitulated, <laughs> gave up, and that was it. And waited for the for <laughs> negotiations um, because it would do so much damage uh, to their plantations. Um, and the reason they wanted troops was to act as a sort of local police force. Prevent slave rebellions and things That's of that right. nature. That's right. Yeah, certainly. And um, so there's no question that that was a factor. And there are other factors, like the fact that um, you know the planters, if they'd been really educated, and certainly if they'd gone to college, it was generally in Britain. Ah, I see. So they've even got that tie as well. Yes. So it's much stronger, and you you actually see the development of that in South Carolina uh, and uh-huh. here in Virginia. Uh, and it particularly makes for an interesting question why South Carolina rebels, because yeah. that is the most analogous. Um, but the slave population in South Carolina was hardly 50%. It was slightly declining proportionally before the revolution. And the lowest percentage in anywhere in the British Caribbean was Barbados at 75%. So it's quite a big difference. <laughs> That's a huge percentage. <laughs> yes. So, so you, you know, this was your, your thesis at Oxford, uh, you had your, your first job at uh, University of Wisconsin, and then you came... Well, actually, oh. I, I taught in the prep school system. I taught at Eton oh, College did. after leaving Oxford, uh, and then did a year as a visitor at SMU in Dallas, which really gave me my foothold and opportunity oh, yeah. to teach. Um, and while I was in Wisconsin, I was teaching at a regional branch of Madison. Uh, okay. It's the third largest in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and I oh, ran, nice. the, yeah. ran the department there for five years. I was fortunate to get to spend a year in Madison, which is a wonderful city, not, sure. not well known by a lot of Americans, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, situated between two lakes and the capital yeah. that looks just like the American capital and a great university and uh, major library holdings, not least the Wisconsin mm-hmm. Historical Society that has some of the best oh, yeah. archival holdings uh, in America. Sounds like a nice place mm-hmm. to spend a year. It certainly. was, yeah. yes. When, uh, when you arrived here at the ICJS, you, know, you were bringing this British imperial mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. How, did you, uh, how did you imagine using that uh, sort of sense of, of the American Revolution, the sense of British mm-hmm. imperial history, and expanding the potential for new scholarship right in the heart of Jefferson's America? Well, I, one of the directions was obviously to emphasize the international element, given mm-hmm. that it was in the title. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we do a conference abroad I see. every year, and increasingly outside of Europe. Mm-hmm. So next year, we're going to be in New Delhi, in India. Really? And uh, last year, we did a, a conference on revolution in the Americas, um, in Santiago, Chile. Oh, very nice. And, uh, and that's a good example of a comparative mm-hmm. uh, conference where you try to better understand the American Revolution by looking at revolutions uh, elsewhere. And it's always a perennially interesting question why they occurred so much later sure. in the Spanish and... Um, Portuguese empires mm-hmm. uh, and uh, why they had such different results. Sure, and, and 
With the conference in New Delhi, what, what's the focus of that? Well, that's actually going back to my primary original oh, interest. Nice. So it's on the British Empire and the American uh -huh. Revolution. And I'm also uh, co-writing a book with Trevor Bernard oh, great. on that uh, topic. Um, and what I really want to emphasize through that conference is how Britain was pursuing parallel policies mm -hmm. elsewhere in the empire. And that's quite important because there's often a sense in the literature that the British are, have no coherent idea of what they're actually doing. Uh -huh. And that these are just sort of random policies uh, that are uh, fixing individual problems. But if you look at the empire, generally, you can see very common themes. And indeed, in the Spanish and French empires, they similarly set out to really reform their entire imperial administrations after the French and Indian War. And I also use that to uh, look at the period of the war and afterwards um, and ask again uh, why other colonies didn't support um, uh, America. Sure. Because uh, there was the expectation they would, especially Canada. Oh, yeah. And so, um, you know, th this conference won't just deal with the West Indies. It sure. actually focus on places like Ireland and Canada. Ireland's particularly interesting because that's in many ways the most analogous to mm -hmm. the West Indies. Um, you know, the behavior of Canada is easier to explain yeah. as a predominantly French Catholic uh, <laughs> colonies. Uh, it was not one country at the time. Sure. Um, in that, some ways, uh, it still, still isn't one country in that, a lot of that's ways. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and you can see they'd be somewhat lukewarm to somewhere like Massachusetts. Yes. Uh, yes. That was condemning the Quebec Act and so forth. <laughs> so, and, and it's clear since then that Britain and other empires weren't just making it up as they went along. They were sort of thinking long term strategically yes. about how this is all going to work and recognizing that there, is, there are differences in the different places they're trying to control. Uh, and very much the result of enlightenment thinking, a more rational, mm -hmm. uh, systematized way yeah. of approaching the problem of empire. Bringing it all into some kind of coherent order, yes. at least in the way that it's going to work. What, when, when you came to um, the ICJS, what was your sense of how uh, Americans thought about the founding generation uh, mm -hmm. and founders like Thomas Jefferson or George Washington? Well, it's interesting because when I arrived, the term founder's chic had been coined, ah. uh, and there were lots of popular books being published about the mm -hmm. founders, uh, largely by journalists and independent writers, and heavily criticized from within the, um, the profession of historians um, uh, because they felt it was too celebratory, too hagiographic. I see. But what was interesting was that most of the popular books were actually about Jefferson's opponents. So a few years before I arrived here, David McCulloch did his book on John Adams. Uh -huh. And while I was here, uh, you got the popular biography of, ben, of um, Alexander Hamilton, oh, uh, yes. which has since, of course, been turned into the Broadway, uh, uh, you know, Broadway musical. And uh, Jefferson has never been part 
of the, even though there are good biographies that have appeared, uh, not least by John Meacham, uh-huh. um, that could appeal to a broad public, uh, but they haven't caught on in the way that those on Hamilton sure. and on Adams. And I suspect a, a reason, and a subconscious reason, I doubt if even the authors realize this, is apart from actually obviously finding new people and something novel, that neither of these are tainted by slavery. Ah, I see. And there's almost a desire to find uh, an alternative founder and someone else to admire that doesn't sort of compromise you uh, sure. in any way. Uh, the problem is that, of course, they were both much less democratic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jefferson may have gone to an extreme accusing them of being closet monarchists and aristocrats. <laughs> uh, but certainly uh, their ideas are actually less uh, consistent with modern American ideas than Jefferson, uh, um, at least on the question of broadening the franchise, a more egalitarian view among whites. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jefferson was uh, more progressive in that sense. Where do you think that that stands now? Have we gotten to a point where you know the that Jefferson uh, is being people are writing about Jefferson within that kind of more popular or uh, framework these days, and ex- accepting the fact that he was a slave owner and building off all the good work that folks like Annette Gordon Reed have done uh, mm-hmm. to really unpack the the more human side of the story of slavery here at Monticello. Well, I think actually it's become more extreme. Oh, I see. Uh, Merrill Peterson did a book many years ago called Thomas Jefferson in the American Mind. Oh, yes. In uh-huh. which he noted that uh, Jefferson had never had, uh, other than perhaps in the Cold War era and the Second World War, uh, you know, an uncritical mm-hmm. view uh, that his reputation had always uh, risen and uh, declined yeah. over different periods. He was not that popular after his presidency. Yeah. <laughs> and the periods uh, later in the 19th century uh, where his uh, you know, standing ebbed with the public um, and there was criticism of him. Uh, and I did a, a review article, an online review article recently uh, called Jefferson For and Against, which was deliberately <laughs> plagiarizing a title of a really quite good book uh, in the late 20th century called Napoleon For and Against. Ah, I see. Um, and actually, I thought a lot of the literature coming out by academics has tried to be terribly balanced for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to use Peter Onus' term, nuanced and oh, conflicted. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he's been, obviously, written more than anyone uh, in the last 30 years sure. and tried to grapple in, in a more profound way mm-hmm. with Jefferson. But I, in the article, I suggested that, actually, at the sort of popular level, uh, it's much more critical, uh, and hence you have the movement to remove statues mm-hmm. of Jefferson, which has happened at the University of Missouri, William and Mary uh, sticking poster notes and so on. Sure. Uh, uh, people talking about changing or removing the name of Jefferson from schools. Uh, most uh, notably, the Democratic Party in 
Connecticut, uh, removing the Jackson Jefferson dinners, uh, which had always been a great tradition in Democratic parties in most states. Sure. Uh, you know, looking at Jefferson and Jackson as their original founders. Uh, so there's a less uh, of a desire to do that. Um, and uh, here at the university, with they're celebrating the bicentenary mm-hmm. of Jefferson at the University of Virginia, but much of the uh, emphasis and work has been on slavery at the university, which was very important yeah. and much neglected, um, but interestingly, not celebratory in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your role here as director of the ICJS, what do you see as your responsibility to take certain, take scholarship in certain directions, you know, building off the momentum of, of reconsidering the founders and reconsidering the role of slavery in early American life and taking advantage of, of these, uh, the bicentennial moments and these other uh, moments that are, you know, we're in the 400th anniversary of the founding of uh, House of Burgesses in Virginia, but also the arrival of the first African slaves. And so how, mm-hmm. how do you see your, yourself as, as uh, charting a pathway forward? Well, I remember uh, you know, when I first arrived, the head of the foundation saying, this is not the Thomas Jefferson um, Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> uh, we, we're, not, we're not here just to uh, act as cheerleaders. Sure. Um, and that we, in fact, want to encourage a strong um, scholarly engagement um, and therefore not to push a particular agenda, simply to encourage mm-hmm. good uh, researchers. Jefferson himself said uh, in founding the university, follow truth wherever it may lead. Um, and uh, one of the results of that is that uh, the foundation has uh, really uh, committed a lot of resources and research mm-hmm. to slavery in Monticello, uh, which is now reflected in the tours. Oh, yes. And uh, so it is a much more nuanced and balanced mm-hmm. view uh, that comes through. What is your day to day? schedule look like as Saunders director? What, what exactly do you do here? <laughs> um, well, and the foundation is unusual in devoting so many resources to scholarly research. So I oversee uh, numerous departments mm-hmm. um, uh, in, and also uh, a fellowship program. So we have over 30 visiting scholars each year wow who receive stipends from us and travel money. Uh, we select them biannually. Uh, they're largely here for one month, mm-hmm. although we do have a fellowship for an entire year. And while they're with us, they give presentations of their work. Uh, we also have lunch with them twice a week uh, and a coffee with them every other week so that they meet the members of the staff um, who might be able to help them mm-hmm. with their work. Um, I uh, also often review some of their work um, sure. and I'm engaged in the uh, Jefferson series produced by the University mm-hmm. of Virginia and one of its editors. Um, I help oversee 
the documentary editing of Jefferson's papers. Uh, oh, this I was a series that. started in 1950. <laughs> and that's when the first volume came out. Yeah. So the planning stages started earlier. <laughs> and uh, it was due to be finished in 2026, mm-hmm. um, thanks to the fact that the project was split um, before my arrival some 20 years ago. Ah. And uh, Monticello agreed to edit the retirement period while mm-hmm. Princeton continued to edit the papers uh, they were beginning on his presidency at that point. Wow. And if that split hadn't occurred, it would have gone on until 2050 uh, <laughs> or later. Um, we will finish, in fact, now in 2027, and I believe oh, Prin- wow. Princeton may go on till 2030 um, so you can see what a huge sure. enterprise it is uh, and so that's one department I oversee I also oversee the archaeology department uh, oh, wow. that um, has uh, is really changing the methodology of mm-hmm. archaeology by uh, digital uh, oh, comparative yeah. methods mm-hmm. uh, it's always curious to me because I think of archaeologists as far more scientific than historians yeah. uh, and yet, so often they'd use their own system of labeling, which made their results almost unusable <laughs> to historians. Sure. Uh, yeah. uh, because we're interested in the comparisons and in making generalizations. Mm-hmm. And thanks to the DAX project here, Digital Archaeological Archive of Comparative Slavery, and you can look at it online as dax.org, that. Um, dot com rather that uh, you can uh, use to make these comparisons and it's really wow. archaeology for historians and we have a very small research department mm-hmm. uh, and try and encourage staff scholarship mm-hmm. um, you know one of my colleagues uh, Gay Wilson's recently did a book on Jefferson on display oh, looking yeah. at how Jefferson projected his image. Uh, another colleague, uh, John Rogoster, mm-hmm. is finishing a biography on um, Patrick Henry <laughs> and did a, a really important work on Jefferson's uh-huh. Statute for Religious Freedom and how it had been interpreted by the Supreme Court uh, over generations and the central role wow. it had played in the the way uh, we interpret the First Amendment on religious freedom. I knew I knew Gay's book had come out, but I didn't realize that John was was finally just for folks out there. John's been working on a biography of Patrick Henry for a long time. Yes, so God, he's, he's already him. done one for young readers. Yes, but this true. will be a much more much bigger work. He's, um, he's yes. finally got there. So with all, yes. I didn't realize, you know, because I, it, it, as mm. people know, I, you know, I was here for a long time. Uh, at UVA and was part of this community. I had no idea that you oversaw, you know, the archaeology. The, mm. the, uh, the I especially didn't didn't realize you oversaw the the papers project. And so, yes. and of course, they all have their own directors sure. who are very good. So yeah. I have to say they don't need a lot of uh, <laughs> oversight. Um, my day to day responsibilities, the biggest, are the fellowship. Yeah program and uh, also the conferences. Mm-hmm. So how do you, I mean, the last couple of years you had a major book called, mm-hmm. came out that called uh, the, the Men Who Lost America, it won the George Washington Book Prize, the New York Historical Society Prize, and the Military History Prize, if I remember yes. correctly. How do you, how do you find time to, 
to write a new book when you've got all this other stuff going on? Well, I'm obviously slower than I used to be <laughs> in terms of productivity. Um, I'm doing less teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first arrived here, I taught essentially the equivalent of a half-time table oh, okay. professor at the university and did graduate seminars mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, I still do some teaching for the university, but it's usually um, for adult lifetime learners uh, and short oh, programs and occasional lectures rather than actual courses. And I might return to that at some point mm -hmm. um, so that I can really focus on what time I have left from administration sure. on my own uh, scholarship. Um, but I've always been very keen that I should continue to be an active scholar. The good thing is I'm now on the right side of the American Revolution <laughs> and I'm actually doing a book on Jefferson. That's right. Um, but uh, I think, you know, having worked in other areas and topics, uh, that was helpful because the danger always, if you're focusing on one person, is navel-gazing, sure, becoming yeah. very antiquarian yeah. and not putting people into context and seeing the broader picture. And I was glad that, of course... In a foundation like this, you have large numbers of curators, archaeologists, uh, and people interested in the material world of Jefferson. Um, but where I think I was able to make a contribution was my interest in the political mm -hmm. history and the reason why uh, most of us are drawn to Jefferson, his mm -hmm. political vision and ideas. Um, and uh, that, that was my my primary interest. And, and right now you are working on a, a new biography or a new, a new overview of, UV, of Jefferson and University of Virginia. It's, it's a correct? book about his founding of the University of Virginia. Um, the title is The Illimitable Freedom of the Human Mind, ah, which is his big words. Phrase, yeah. uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson's idea of a university, which is also a deliberate echo, and perhaps the most famous statement of a liberal arts education by Cardinal John Newman, which is just called The Idea of a University. And in some ways, it's intertwined with the story of his retirement years, mm -hmm. uh, which is when he becomes most involved in this process, although he proposed the idea of the University of Virginia in the same year as election as president to Joseph Priestley. Ah. And before that, he worked on trying to reform William and Mary. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was always uh, very, very important to him. Um, and actually, uh, it's a project where it's difficult not to be very admiring of him, uh -huh. um, that uh, his ideas in many ways anticipate many of the features of a modern university. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's, what's an example of something like that? Uh, well, one is um, the role of religion, ah. that um, he did not want any one denomination uh, dominating the university, mm -hmm. and most universities, indeed since medieval times, have been religious sure. foundations, uh, and that continued to be true in America. Yeah. Uh, there was a certain amount of tolerance among fellow Protestants, so you could be Anglican and go to Presbyterian uh -huh. Princeton. Um, but uh, 
nevertheless, uh, you know, a major role of what we now call the Ivy Leagues in the mm -hmm. 17th and early 18th century being training members of the ministry. Sure. Uh, and William and Mary for the Anglican Church. Um, and that still continued to be mm -hmm. important. Um, they still really stressed... Uh, a classical education from the time of the Renaissance with the emphasis on the Greek and Roman classics. Mm -hmm. um, and Jefferson really uh, pushed the idea of uh, the, the study of science. Ah, yes. uh, although he was not a sort of STEM man in that he clearly appreciated <laughs> the yeah. importance of languages and he regards Anglo-Saxon as essential to study, which... Sure. I think most today would probably disagree with, but uh, <laughs> he made the very good point that it is uh, part of the foundation mm -hmm. of the English language um, and the importance, really, of people's ability to communicate. And, and where are you in the process of uh, writing the book? So I will finish um, a very rough draft at the end of this year. Very good. And it shouldn't you know, be a month or two after that that I'll really be cleaning up yeah. and filling out my footnotes completely. <laughs> uh, and I have them. I always do footnotes yeah. as I go along. But, uh, and I don't want to over-weigh it with footnotes because sure. it is meant to be highly readable mm -hmm. for undergraduates and lay people and alumni. Although I want to make it a book that's also very relevant to people who have yeah. nothing to do with the University of Virginia. Sure. Uh, an important uh, role in the history of higher education in America. And because his ideas are so creative, to uh, help encourage people to think what is the role of the university and the purpose, um, and uh, some to extent reflect on our current direction. Sure, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly. How, uh, you know, because I just, I mentioned just a moment ago your, your earlier book, The Men Who Lost America, and that, what I always liked about that book is the way you decided to structure um, the book around biographical chapters of the yes. key players in the revolution. And so I want to ask you about how that process informed the, this Jefferson book and thinking about how to tell that story. But uh, if we could just take a moment and sort of talk about that book. Yeah, uh, properly. Well, it's a good connection because when I worked on Men Who Lost America, I'd been thinking about that since the time I was a graduate student. Ah, okay. I worked with a film company that were doing films from the Oxford Union mm -hmm. called Great Confrontations. <laughs> uh, and there was one very famous debate they filmed with Caspar Weinberger on uh, nuclear armaments oh, yes. uh, against the British historian and then head of the European nuclear disarmament movement, E.P. Thompson. <laughs> and I suggested to them, why don't you do a documentary yeah. about the British side of the American Revolution? And I even did a proposal and sketched it out in which each, um, each episode would be one, be one of these individual. Figures. So to some extent, I had a film in my mind. Uh, and when I came to write the book, I mean, a lot of publishers said to me, no, do a conventional mm -hmm. approach uh, where you amalgamate these individuals and you do a straight narrative. Uh, my difficulty with that was I thought it would read again like the conventional story of the yeah. American Revolution. And that also these people would disappear. I mean, I don't have a particularly good memory when I read a book of yeah. the characters. 
and they don't necessarily stand out, uh, whereas if you do it biographically. What was unusual about that book, um, and the idea of multi-biography is, I don't think, exploited enough, and I've always loved sort of thumb biographies that um, give you the essence of someone, yeah. which can easily be lost in a multi-volume biography, sure. ironically, yeah. uh, which tells you much more, but in some ways less. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But what was unusual about this was to have a timeline going throughout, mm -hmm. so it, it works a bit like a play. Yeah, you, yeah. You're looking at the key decision makers, both military and political, mm -hmm at the moments in which they play a major role. And you, I mean, you do get, of course, the danger of some overlap. I tried to make, minimize that as much as possible. But as you read the book, it starts with George III and Lord North because they are characters that go yeah. throughout and they help to set up the whole scene and the background mm -hmm. uh, in London. Um, but you then go through to Cornwallis, Rodney, All those uh, and Yorktown. Uh, so it's still actually a chronology. It's meant to be read from beginning to end, although obviously you can just dip into <laughs> dip any in you want. chapter. Yeah. Um, and that did play a role in my current book, although I never thought it would because I broke away from writing a book just like a thesis uh -huh. in doing that. Um, and is still, I hope, highly analytical because I think it explains more than most books do mm -hmm. why the British lost the war. Sure. Oh, sure. And I summarize that at the end. Um, but nevertheless, there's still a lot of narrative and description. And that, that has continued with this current book. I didn't realize, though, that it, it would do. Uh, it's almost as though I had thought of this as a documentary also. Yeah. But I begin each chapter with a very rich description of several pages of a particular moment. And the great thing is for Jefferson's later life, mm -hmm. there are these very vivid accounts that people wrote. Uh, people who were still living after the American Civil War in the 1870s and 1880s. Oh, wow. yeah. uh, the first students to come to the university, of course, included Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the first professors. Mm -hmm. And so there's a marvelous account by a student who came to give a speech at the university in the 1880s, um, and was still alive, in which he describes being invited up to Monticello with fellow students to dine with Thomas Jefferson and the whole experience <laughs> of it. Uh, and uh, then the first professor who was appointed from England, oh, yeah. which was highly controversial because mm -hmm. five of his eight professors <laughs> they were, were recruited in Britain. Yeah, well, were... One of them was German. And uh, he described arriving and finding the place absolutely empty, uh, but virtually already built. So he said it was like an abandoned city. Um, and uh, the pavilion where he was meant to live it was unfurnished, there was no food, and it was one of the worst Februarys uh, in Virginian history. And he describes then going up to Monticello to meet Jefferson. It's a very funny description because mm -hmm. he wasn't much older than the students, he was 25. Oh, and really? uh, Jefferson looked at him horrified <laughs> and said, you, you're incredibly young. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, he seemingly, without hesitation, replied, "Ah, oh, yes, but I'll grow old." <laughs> um, I knew, you know, something like the uh, the uh, laying of the foundation uh-huh. stone at the university by the three presidents, yeah. Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. I've only ever seen very brief descriptions of that before. Oh, but, really? Uh, I found actually the Freemasons had kept a detailed report of everything, ah, a many-page report, because uh, they often use Freemasons for ceremonies. Uh, some explain it as the absence of monarchy and ritual, mm-hmm. that they provided a sort of ritual to um, you know, naming buildings and yeah. uh, laying foundation stones. And I found the Freemasons' report thanks to our papers here, ah. who are editing all these... Uh, documents related to the founding of the university because they are doing Jefferson's retirement years. And um, so I'm able to describe that. And it's a marvellous ceremony. Uh, and they're playing patriotic anthems like oh, Hell yeah. Columbia and Jefferson's Election March. Uh, <laughs> and uh, all these, it's, he held it very smartly during court day. Ah. So all the judges are in town, a lot of the political oh, figures. Uh, savvy. And, uh, and the reason uh, that I describe it in such detail is I really want to illustrate Jefferson's political savviness, mm-hmm. as you rightly say, and his skill, which comes across much more clearly to me on this project and how he manages to get the bill through the university a very controversial university in which there would be no department of theology and they wouldn't formally teach religion yeah. uh, at a time when the country was becoming more and more evangelical and incredibly costly in a period when the state and Jefferson himself were going bankrupt. <laughs> the, the crash of 1819, which is the year right. the legislature passes the bill, and I might tell you, it was the most expensive set of public buildings outside of Washington, D.C. It doesn't, in a lot of ways, you know, knowing Jefferson, it doesn't surprise me. That no, <laughs> I know, they, spend, they spend more building this <laughs> than the entire endowment of Yale and income of Yale since its founding. You're kidding. Holy crap. And he wanted this. And so I think it's a great story yeah. to tell. And he was involved in every aspect of it. And I cannot think of a head of state of any other mm-hmm. country who is not merely the patron and the founder, but who helps design the curriculum, select the faculty, who literally yeah. designs the buildings, uh, chooses library books. You've worked on some of this yourself, sure. the law, and you, you see Jefferson's fingerprints everywhere, and he was writing down almost on a daily basis to supervise some of this work. On his very last visit to the university, he was opening boxes of books <laughs> to go into the library and actually notice that they'd got Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and they misspelled, the Tudor had misspelled Gibbon. <laughs> and he told the librarian, you need to send this send back. back. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, uh, you're referencing the piece that Randy Flaherty and I wrote for um, the edited collection, The Founding of Thomas Jefferson's University. And yeah, that was one of the more remarkable things as we're writing the chapter on Jefferson and legal education. It's just mm-hmm. how attentive he was to every single detail and how, how insistent he was that if you are going to 
accept the fact that you have to train American lawyers in a common law tradition, that you have to structure that curriculum so that they get these Whig ideals and these, these quasi-Republican ideals of the 17th century first before they ever touch people like Sir William Blackstone or Sir uh, Lord Chief Justice Mansfield, who are, you know, are, are, in his mind at least, preaching political and legal heresies that reinforce state power and monarchy. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, in, you know, I can just see him looking at those books saying, all right, let's put Edward Cook here. Maybe we'll hide the Blackstone somewhere else. For the Although, ironically, Blackstone was taken out by students more yeah, than any yeah, other exactly. law book in the library. That was uh, my favorite part of it. We, yes. we had a student mm-hmm. do an analysis of the books checked out, and mm-hmm. she found that, um, by God, people were checking out Blackstone pretty frequently. And the first student society was called the Patrick Henry Society, who Jefferson <laughs> detested. Uh, so I don't... Uh, I mean, some people have tried to stress his sort of ideological uh-huh. uh, ideas, which were only for law and politics. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that uh, he actually appointed professors who, like George Tucker, who disagreed with him fundamentally yeah. on some of these right. issues... Um, and clearly, uh, you know, the students in the library would reflect a whole range of um, oh, sure. ideas. Uh, but if you get them all pointed in the one direction, you're going to make them good mm-hmm. small-r Republicans in the end. And, and we forget how much the modern university is based on a certain view of mm-hmm. life um, and democratic yeah. ideals, so that when... Uh, you know, the, the, the wall fell in uh, the Iron Curtain. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of those East German universities and um, uh, East European countries sacked a huge proportion of their faculty with the result that they have a lot of very young professors mm-hmm. in places like the Czech Republic and East Germany because they felt that the professors weren't committed to the ideals of the society, uh, rightly or wrongly. Well, Andrew, thanks very much for your time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. I I think we all look forward to seeing what comes out of the ICJS next. And uh, best of luck finishing that Jefferson book and uh, best wishes for the new year. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. You can find more information on our webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.